This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. I called my Aunt Linda, and when I heard her voice, I just started wailing. I just started wailing because I know this is someone who loves me and someone who wants what's best for me. And the only thing I could get out my mouth, Rasul, between tears was they don't want me here. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thank you for joining me again on Where You're From. This week, I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. And y'all, what a story. She is an incredible example of what it looks like to endure hardship. And I'm not just talking about the regular stresses of life. I'm talking fellow cadets at the Naval Academy trying to get her to quit. And in the midst of that, losing her mom and being the main support for her family all at the same time. But she endured. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Natasha. She is the president of T3 Leadership Solutions Incorporated, an international speaker, consultant, and executive leadership and mentoring coach with more than 20 years of experience in the military, government, church, seminary, and nonprofit sectors. She stays busy. She's an author of A Sojourner's Truth and more. To find out how Natasha endured, let's step back to the beginning and join me as I ask Natasha, where you're from? I'm from Orangeburg, South Carolina. Mm. So, like, tell us a little bit about how being born and raised in Orangeburg has helped shape who you are. Yeah, I think it's everything. The town was like a rural town. It was pretty segregated. I mean, there were white and black people there, but mostly black people by and large. This is a town with two historically black colleges and universities. So we have a private university, Claflin University, and the public one, South Carolina State University. And my mother attended Claflin. She didn't graduate. She had some health issues. But she worked at both schools and she would work in the library. And so I was always surrounded by educated black people, black excellence, the whole HBCU experience that was very formative for me. I mean, you know, our rhythms of life revolved around the football schedule in the fall. So that was a large part of my formation. My town is one that has history connected to the civil rights movement as well. There was a bowling alley and it was closed by the time I was a child, but the sign for the bowling alley was still there and the building was abandoned, but there were pictures in the walls of the building of three black boys. They were high school students and they had been murdered in what we call the Orangeburg Massacre. And so basically it was a peaceful protest that started at South Carolina State and high school students were joining in because they were trying to get their rights to bowl. That's what they wanted to do. And it was the only bowling alley within a 20 mile radius. And so you think about a lot of these high school students, a lot of the college students, like they didn't have cars. And so it's like if they didn't go to that bowling alley, they just weren't able to bowl. And so they had a peaceful protest. It escalated not because of their action, but because it was a heavily police environment. I mean, they sent National Guard and stuff to my hometown to basically contain, if you will, these students that were just going to school and wanted to have a little bit of leisure that was legal. I mean, at the time the laws had been passed, it was not supposed to be segregated. And long story short of it, several people got injured, but these three boys, 17, 18 year old boys were murdered. And I didn't find out until later when I was reading up on the massacre a little bit, when I was writing my memoir, that they had beat a college student, young woman. She was married. She was pregnant. She was attending South Carolina State University. And they beat her so severely that she ended up miscarrying her child the next week. And so I had always known about the three 
boys, but I had not heard that story until a few years ago. Mm. And so these are stories I grew up learning because, mm. you know, my mom's generation and generation before her, they were part of that important work of trying to gain equity for black people. I remember one of my aunts, when she passed away a few years ago, I didn't know this about her. And one of the congressmen spoke on her behalf at the funeral. And he was saying that she was the first African-American woman to stand in line in our town for the right to vote. And so this was always a part of my legacy. And so I didn't know, like I was always a person that kind of had like a justice been a little bit as a young person. I didn't know that's what it was. I just want everybody to be treated fairly. You know, I want I wanted us to have opportunities. I worked really hard and I didn't realize that all of that stuff was kind of a part of my family's legacy and the history of the town, which was very impoverished. I would say most of the people there are impoverished or middle class, lower middle class people, but hard workers, Jesus loving people. And those are people that, you know, really form and shape my life. And so I just remember, you know, over the years, just kind of reflecting on this. I never thought that I was lacking anything because of the family and the home that I was raised in. Even though we didn't have a lot of financial things, we were comfortable. It depended on the year and depended on what was going on. But whatever I needed in Orangeburg, I got to be able to survive the things that I've survived, mm. you know, <laughs> as a black woman in America. Mm. And so I'm just thankful for that formation. Got it. Wow. That was such a, a powerful story. It's one that I actually dug into a little bit deeper. And one of the things that surprised me about the Orangeburg massacre was that it took place in 1968. Mm-hmm. So when you think about that in the context, this is what over 14 years after Brown versus board of education in 1954, right. which is supposed to make desegregation, the law of the land. Right. So this yep. is 14 years later. Yep. This is after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, exactly. yep. which also came as a moment to supposed to make things equal, right? right. This is right. after all of that. And yet in your town, it was still an act of defiance and mm-hmm. conflict to simply go to a bowling alley. Right. As high school kids. Yeah. How do you reconcile that? How does that make sense that after these landmark moments that we normally think about the clock stopping on segregation, that it was still alive and well to the point that even going bowling was a scene of such carnage. It's one thing to have unjust laws on the books that should never be on the books. It's another thing to have just laws on the books, but they have to be enforced, right? And so sometimes it's a lack of knowledge or a lack of wisdom, but also I think more often than not, it's a lack of will. And that's the thing, this bowling alley was a family business you know, owned by a white man. And he was just like, I'm just not going to do it. And so in his mind, it's like, it's my property. It's my business. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I just think a lot of times when we think about leadership, even there's a quote that I love from this book, uh, building the bridge as you walk on it, that most people will prefer a slow death than deep change. Mm. And I think that's what we see happening a lot of times when we think about the systemic injustices in our country. So I'm not surprised by it at all. It's disappointing, but it's just a reality of how it's been for black people in America. Mm. Okay, so this takes place, obviously, years before you are born. Mm -hmm. But it seems like the story of these moments, the story of struggle kind of stayed with you and your family. What's the earliest memories you have of being aware of a struggle that you were part of a legacy. Yeah, well, so that one was an easy one. So that bowling alley is what we call downtown, which is not much of a downtown, right? Mm-hmm. And so the thing is that the building was right next door to the Piggly Wiggly. That's where we got our groceries. <laughs> so wow. it's like, although the building was closed and it was abandoned, the sign still hung and we were past that building several times a week. So it was not like it's something in a history book somewhere in the archives, in a newspaper, Mm. in a library that you never hear about or talk about. I mean, this is history we're passing every single week. And when I think about the parades of South Carolina State University, those type of things, that's the street people walk on. (laughs) Right. And so it's like the center of of town, the heartbeat of town. Mm -hmm. I think about when I was in high school, I was in this kind of character uh, leadership formation program and the lady who led that was Miss Gerdine Zimmerman and she lived to be a hundred years old. She was a lifetime member of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Color People. And she was a Christian, right? And so whenever I'm going on Saturday mornings to this program for four years of my high school years, like I'm hearing these stories. Mm. Like so these are people that 
I know I see every day. And so mm-hmm. even though I wasn't born yet, I've always been one to listen to my elders and to value their stories and to laugh at their stories. I think that was partially because I enjoyed, for the most part, spending time with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. And so it was always an intergenerational community. You know, you go to church. And it was like you and your whole family sat on a pew. So you can have a grandchild, a parent and the grandparent or the great grandparent. They all together at church. Like, you know, not just your family, but, you know, the extension of other people's family because it was that type of a community. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so just to kind of paint a picture in your immediate context, who was living in the house with you when you, you know, came on the scene and were growing up? Yeah. So my mother... So she was married to my biological father. They got divorced when I was a very young age, and then he passed away. Mm. And so my mother got remarried. I would say probably I was around six years old. So I always call him my father. I never call him my step anything. You know, I mm-hmm. feel like you need to give honor where honor is due, and you honor people who put in work. And so my father, who raised me, he's always been in my home, in my life. And so for all intents and purposes... Aside from the years when my mother was a single mother, I'd always been in a two-parent household until the time that my mother passed away when I was in college. Wow. And only child? I'm the oldest of three. Okay. And so it's me. And then I have a sister who's two years younger than me. And then a brother who is really like my cousin, but we... (laughs) did an informal adoption. And so he was brought into our home. So he came to us when he was about four months old. Got it. So when would you say your faith became an important part of your own story? Well, I would say that my relationship with the Lord became intimate when I was going off to college. Hmm. So I kind of joke a little bit. I said, I've always been Jesus proximate, right? Like I was close enough to Jesus to know to call on him if I got in trouble and to not say anything foolish out of my mouth, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've always been in church my whole life. You go to work or school Monday through Friday, and then on Sundays you go to church. And so I come from a very rich Christian legacy. There's been many years in my family on my mother's side where we had five living generations and we knew all those living wow. generations. And what I know about these people is like they church going people. They people who sing and worship the Lord. They are servant people. They are hospitable people. Not perfect people right but that's the thing like they love Jesus that we have no doubt and so that's always been a part of my upbringing and so I knew that well dad singing on the quartet mom singing on the choir us going to vacation bible school us going to bible study sometimes us going to revival (laughs) I grew up Methodist for the most part my family went to a traditional Baptist church by the time I was in a junior in high school but my family on my mom's side we had multiple generations that were born and baptized and raised in the same church, St. Stephen United Methodist Church. So when my grandmother passed away, like she was the mother of the church and that's the church she got baptized in as a child. Mm, wow. When I ended up getting accepted to the Naval Academy, I went to the Naval Academy Preparatory School for a year and it was in Newport, Rhode Island. So very far away from South Carolina. I went without a lot of money. I knew that my dad was a strong protector. So I, I never worried about things as a kid. I'm like, if somebody messed with me, they gonna have to deal with my daddy and you don't want that smoke, you know? Um, so I never worried about that, but he wasn't going with me. And my mother was very much loving and nurturing and protecting and she wasn't going. And so it was just a conversation with God on the plane uh, flying up the road out. And I'm like, God, like, I need you to go because the people who normally go, you know, to do all the things to show up in such a way, um, they're not going to be able to do that for me. So I need you to do that and be that for me. And if mm. you do that, I would serve you. And so that was kind of the start of my own personal journey. Got it. Got it. What made you decide to go so far away for school and go to the Navy? So I come from a military family. My mother actually served in the army. She was a typist and her dad served in the army. He was a World War II vet and her brother did a career in the army. And that's on my mother's side. And then on my dad's side, my dad has several sisters and one of his sisters has four boys and three of those four boys who were my age in my age group, they ended up going into the military. And so the military was always something I knew about. It wasn't something I desired or aspired to just because of my ignorance, right? There's just things I didn't know. And so I was a really, really good track athlete. 
And so I was recruited by the Naval Academy to come run for them. And I started racing competitively at a very young age in sixth grade in the Junior Olympics. Mm. And so by the time I became a senior in high school, the truth is I was burnt out on track. So I didn't really want to run track in college. I would have run track if I needed to to pay for school, but I didn't really want to run it. And so it was important to me not to take an athletic scholarship if I could avoid it, mm. because I know, you know, if you get injured, if you don't perform, you know, your money's out of the way. And I needed something more solid than that. With the Naval Academy, even if you get recruited, everyone's on an academic scholarship. So if you decide you're not going to run or you get injured, you know, you got to still be able to serve in the military, but you can keep your scholarship. So that was part of it. But I needed to go to school for free. So my parents had that conversation with me in sixth grade. It was like, look, we think you're smart. We would love to see you go to college. You got to figure out how you're going to pay for it. And it wasn't exactly like that, but that's the just of the conversation. And so in them saying that, I took it upon myself in sixth grade. I was like, oh, I got to figure this out. And so I started making decisions in sixth grade, as early as sixth grade, about things I was going to do to make myself eligible to get a full ride to college. And so by the time I graduated from high school in 1997, I had been accepted to a lot of schools. And I had several full rides. Mm. And so the difference between those schools and the Naval Academy was they were going to pay me to go to school. So they gave me a monthly stipend and they were guaranteeing me not just a job, but a career. Okay. There's a couple of things that you just said in passing that I find very fascinating. In sixth grade, you decided yeah. to come out with a plan, an executed plan based on what your parents said. You, you, you realize that's unique, right? And as a result of that, making decisions yeah. to prepare you for graduation in high school. What do you think that that says about who you are? You know, the question is, are leaders born or made? And I say both. Right. I think some leaders are born. I think some are made. And I think whether you're born or made, you all need training. You could always get better. I realize now in hindsight, I think I was a born leader. Mm. Right. And so some of that is self-leadership. Some of that you ask about the other children in my home. Some of that is being the oldest child. And then some of that was I think I was showing up in life a certain way as a child that people saw things in me. And to me, it felt normal because that's just how I've always been. Mm-hmm. But to the adults, there was like, oh, it's something special about her. Mm-hmm. And so I think that some of that is just the way that my leadership showed up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you make this decision. I mean, I would imagine, you know, Newport, Rhode Island is probably just the same as Orangeburg, South Carolina, right? No differences. <laughs> well, the main difference that I saw immediately that I care about is it's extremely cold. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we don't do cold. (laughs) And so that was that it was extremely cold. But I tell you, it was the scenery. So our barracks where we lived was right on the water. So the sunsets that you would see every day was amazing. Going out in the afternoon and take a run. You got geese walking around and I mean, you're literally living on base. So it's a pretty safe thing. You're not worrying. I'm not worrying as a woman or as a black person. If I'm going to be harmed, you could just go sit down on the grass and, and sit by the water or watch the sunset. Now, our life was not all about that. It was a lot of work. So in this case, I went to the Naval Academy Preparatory School first for a year. And the reason they sent me there was to do leveling work. So basically, they saw my package in admissions office, they said, oh, this is the type of student we want. But because I didn't have, I know this now, I didn't know that then. So I was at the top of my class. I did all the things right academically, check all the boxes, but I didn't have the same quality education as some of my white counterparts that had, let's just say, different academic experiences. So they were better prepared. And so the way my deficiency showed up was that I didn't have what they considered a solid enough SAT score. And so they said, you know, she done all the things. She's checked all the boxes. We believe she can graduate, but we just want to make sure that she's able to academically handle the rigor of the Naval Academy. So essentially I had a five year college experience, right? Let me, let me pause there for a second yeah. because that's intriguing to me that someone who was so driven decided sixth grade, I'm going to do everything that I can to prepare myself for the next phase of life. You get accepted to these different schools. And yet when you get to the next level, they see something where it's like due to no fault of your own, you weren't right. as prepared as others. How do you make sense of that? Oh, I could talk about that for a good long while. It is one of the things that just kind of irks me on the inside. I'm also very passionate about education, but I can tell you just from a perspective of someone who ended up working in the Naval Academy Office of Admissions and becoming the senior diversity outreach officer there. So I was doing DEI diversity work before it was cool. Mm. Right. And so I know what the conversations are. I know what the records look like when they are coming to the admissions board. And so what I would say with that perspective and understanding is the Naval Academy is among the schools that are getting the best of the best in the country. 
they have a way of measuring the quality of the school you went to and they know what the rigor is that's required of you to graduate of that school. It's a STEM focused school. Everyone gets a bachelor's of science degree regardless of your major. So even though I majored in English, I have a bachelor's of science degree because I took so many technical classes, you know, th- three years of calculus, you know, three years of chemistry, two years of physics, mm-hmm. engineering. So all these type of classes you take as a foundation. And so what they know well is what it takes academically to get a young person through that place. And so they were right in their assessment. I needed leveling work. But to your point, it was to no fault of my own. I did the best I could with what was available to me. And they saw that as well. Mm. I'll give you another example of this. I majored in English. You go to these institutions and they define what the standard of excellence is. Now, I don't agree always with the standard that they define, but needless to say, the institution has the right and authority to define. So what you may call a classic might not be a classic to me. Right. Mm. And so the frustration, Rasul, was being an English major, going into what they consider the foundational English classes and going through classics that were not presented to me as someone who loved to read. All mm. I did as a child most of the time was reading. That was like a running joke in my family that this child always has her head in a book. And so I was so angry when I got there because I'm like, why didn't someone tell me? the quote-unquote right books to read because I would have read them. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't reading the quote-unquote right books. So when I'm in a foundational English class at the Naval Academy and I'm approaching this classic for the first time, my peers had already engaged with that two or three times over in high school. And so it takes me longer to process the material. It takes me longer to write my papers because I'm just wrestling with this for the first time. What do you think that's a sign of? Like, what's the source of that problem? Yeah, I think it's a problem of how we fund our public schools or don't Mm. fund our public schools. So that's directly attached to the economics and classism in our country. A lot of times it's also attached to race, right? So the way we district certain things, Mm. you know, the ways that the quality of education is funded a lot of times through taxes that's being paid on houses and mortgages. But if you're in a community where people are renting or there's a lot of apartments, that money is not being funded back into the school, or maybe Mm. the money is there, but it's going to something else. All those things has a direct impact on the quality of education that a child gets. To me, it's an act of justice. I think the church should be more concerned with because we are failing these kids at an astronomical rate. Mm. And I would like for the church to be not just more concerned. And I don't want to have a whole bunch of conversations. I want people to do stuff. (laughs) That's Mm. what I want regarding this area of the disparity and lack of consistency of the quality of education that children are getting in our country. Got it. All right. Thank you for indulging my little sidebar on that. But all right. So you get there, you do the preparatory work. Now you're at the Naval Academy. Walk us through that season of life. I know you talk about it in your book Mm -hmm. and the Sojourner Truth that there were some significant things that happened for you there. So race is always a factor and then gender is always a factor. And it's not a factor because Natasha is making it a factor. It's a factor because it is right. And so when I went to the Naval Academy Preparatory School, it was actually more diverse because the type of students they send to that school. So they send students to that school who are like me. You go to the Naval Academy and I'm a minority among women. I'm a minority as a black person. And there are people who feel that it's their place that they're entitled to it, that you don't belong there. And if you got there, it's because they're trying to fill some kind of quota. When you say minority, paint that picture, what that means, because that could be 49% out of 100. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. I I mean, golly, when you do multi-ethnic ministry work, at least, you know, when I start paying attention to that, they they will say you're on your right path. You're on the way. If you have like a 20% population, you know, being a people of color, you know, because then you start having what they call a critical mass. And then that has a way of kind of shifting culture. So we were not in the double digits for that. Certainly not as black people Mm. and then not as women either. So all of our service academies, they didn't graduate their first class of women until the early 80s. That's after I was born. Mm. So you were a minority of a minority. I, I think in the book you mentioned three out of 40 of your classmates were black. In my platoon, in plebe summer. Absolutely. Yeah. And in those three, I was the only girl. Right. 
And what was the first time that you experienced the weight of that or the reality of what that meant in terms of how you experienced the Naval Academy? The summer when I got there. So the Naval Academy's version of quote unquote officer boot camp is what they call plebe summer. It's six weeks of training before you even start any of your academic classes. And so in that time, we knew that's when, you know, I'm getting written up for not being professional, for not having table manners, getting D's in military performance, getting called out in the hallway, being told that I'm going to run you out of here. This is the my school. You don't belong here. I'm going to write up your paperwork. Basically, what we call it railroading, right? And so you're trying to build up a file on somebody to get them kicked out. And so you're at tables. You're getting ready to put the fork in your mouth. They wait. You put the fork in your mouth. And then they ask you a question. You're supposed to respond quickly. So you cannot chew. So you're getting Mm. yelled at for chewing too long. Then you get yelled at for talking with food in your mouth. Mm. right? And then you get written up for not having table manners because that's not professional. And you don't have good table etiquette. Right. I remember one day I was so rebellious because I was so angry. I just stopped eating. So I just put my fork down, just kind of slammed the fork down on the table. And I just stopped eating. And it was like, no, sister, you need to eat. Because they knew that they would get in trouble. If I didn't eat, because you're out here, you're sweating all day, you're Mm. working out, you're stressed out. Mm. And I'm like, I'll call your bluff. Right. And so I did that one day and then they got concerned then. And it's like, oh, no, sister, we're not going to ask you anymore because you got to eat. Because Mm -hmm. they knew, like, if I passed out on that field, somebody going to have to answer for Mm. that. And to some degree, I want to be very clear, to some degree, that level of being able to perform under stress and pressure is an important part of your military training because you're preparing people to go to war. right? Right. And to some degree, they're doing some level of that to everyone. But there were moments where it was very clear that you were being targeted and singled out and you got, quote unquote, special attention that was not warranted. Oof, man, that is so complex to have to work through. Right. And especially to have to work through that at 18. Right. You tell a story and I just thought it was very poignant of going to the chaplain's mm-hmm. office in the midst of all this. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. This is where, you know, we start thinking about like psychological warfare. Mm. I've been trained in these things. You know, they start playing all these mind games on you. And so if you don't learn what's happening and understand how to respond well in a way that you're going to survive it, that you'll just quit. Mm. Right. You just quit. And you had people who did that. People quit. I'm like, I'm not going to quit because I don't have anything to go back to. Mm-hmm. I've given up all this other stuff. This has to work. Mm-hmm. Right. So they didn't understand that because they didn't know me, but I knew me and I knew my people. So they're thinking they're playing all these games and they're thinking, oh, we're breaking her down because the goal is to get her to quit. When we come back, we'll hear how Natasha endured through the pressure to quit, only to be faced with her hardest trial yet, the unexpected death of her mother. That's coming up next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. Thank you so much for listening to Where You're From. Before we jump back into our conversation with Natasha Sistrunk Robinson, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next guests, William Pinnell and Jamar Tisby. This is Where You're From. The question that I faced after graduation, of course, was where now? What's next? I had no idea. There wasn't any room for me, any place at all for me in the denomination in which I was converted or nurtured. After all, that Bible school belonged to a 
denomination and it saw itself as a missionary church. They would go into all the world, all those colored people out there, there was no colored people in their own churches at home. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And in just a moment, we'll jump back into our conversation with Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. But before we do, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. They not only contain the talking points for today's show, but some links to learn more about Natasha and her work. You can find these links in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Now let's get back into our conversation with Natasha on where you're from. I was just out of sorts and I asked to see the chaplain because I knew that they could not deny me from seeing the chaplain. Like if you ask for a religious appointment, they have to give it to you because they want to make sure you're not suicidal. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the level of stress you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. They cannot ask you questions about why they cannot ask you questions about what's wrong. They just have to book your appointment. And I knew that. So I asked to see the chaplain. They made an appointment. Somebody have to escort you because you can't go anywhere by yourself. One of the upperclassmen was escorting me to the chaplain's office. And in route, one of his peers basically yelled out to him, did we get her? And he said, almost. Mm. Right. And what I drew from that is like, did we get her to quit? Like, is she about to break? And so they're thinking that I don't know what's being said. And I'm very clear about what's being said. And I was just looking for some reprieve. Got to the chaplain's office, Chaplain Diane Bian. Never forget her. You know, we just sat for a while in silence. She asked me eventually, did I want to make a phone call? And we sat in silence partially because I don't know this lady. Right. I don't know if I could trust her. I'm just I'm just looking for a little break. <laughs> right. I'm like, I don't know whose side you on. I don't know what games you playing, but I'm not playing. I'm done. Today is not the day, ma'am. Like we're not doing this. So she asked me if I wanted to make a phone call. I told her I did. I tried calling my mother. She didn't pick up. And there were only a, two other numbers I had memorized. <laughs> and that was my grandmother's number and my aunt Linda's number. I called my aunt Linda, my mother's sister. And when I heard her voice, I just started wailing. I just started wailing mm. because I know this is someone who loves me and someone who wants what's best for me. And the only thing I could get out my mouth, Rasul, between tears was they don't want me here. Mm. And I was so glad that she didn't start crying. She just kind of said, it's going to be okay, baby. She didn't say, well, come on home. She didn't say quit. Like, she didn't say any of that. Mm. And I remember I was about to hang up. And then I said to her, I said, please, please don't tell my mother that I called. I was really glad in that moment that my mother didn't pick up because my mother would have worried about me hmm. every day for the rest of the summer. And it really wasn't a need for it. You know what I'm saying? Like it was hard, but I was going to be okay. Like I was sleeping. I was eating. I just didn't want her worrying about me like that. So I'm so glad she didn't pick up. But that was a day in the life hmm. of training. Wow. <laughs> That gave me chills when you said, like, just the sound of the voice was yeah. this moment of comfort, but also an awareness mm -hmm. of how much you missed and how much you had given up yeah. to pursue this dream thousands of miles away. Mm -hmm. And it also just reminds me of the power of when Jesus says, you know, I'm the good shepherd and the, mm -hmm. the sheep know my voice. Yes. And just the assurance of a voice, yes. you know, that, yes. that, that yes. of someone who loves you and who cares about you. When did that voice spiritually start to also become more attuned to you? Because you mentioned that that also happened when you were in the Naval Academy. I think I need to speak about just kind of like my spiritual formation journey. So I told you briefly, I grew up Methodist and then my parents started going to a traditional Baptist church. And I think somewhere around there, I started reading my Bible on my own, not consistently, but I started. And when I got baptized in that traditional Baptist church, they gave me my first Bible that I remember having my name in. Mm -hmm. And it was an old King James Bible. And that's the first Bible I read cover to cover. Right. So I still have that Bible. To me, God speaks clearest through his word. And so I've always loved engaging in God's word in that way. But then I got to the Naval Academy and there was formation happening in many layers of ways. And I realized now in hindsight that God was forming me in such a way because of the different people that I would be able to get engaged in and touch through the ministry work that I do. So I was in college. I was being intentionally discipled by a white reform Presbyterian woman. 
And in Chaplain Meehan, she was a Protestant chaplain. And so there were activities, Bible studies and things, events that they would do just for midshipmen who identified as being Protestant. The entire four years in the academy, I sung on the Naval Academy's gospel choir. That's where all the black people were. So every week we had choir rehearsal and it was church. Like that was our church every single week. And and that's why I hung out with the black folks. And then as a freshman, you're very restricted in where you can go in a time you have off. And so the only place you're really allowed to go on Sundays is church. And so if you have someone that can provide transportation, you can go to whatever church you want within a certain mile radius. And so I will always go to church with the upperclassmen and I was going to Pentecostal churches. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, these people shouting and praising and speaking in tongues and interpreting like the whole bit. So all of that formation was happening. And I remember in college praying to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Like I was like just be in my bed praying about that. And that meant different things in different communities. But I'm just like, if there's any more of God to have, like I want it. And and it wasn't a prideful prayer, but it was like a closeness and a presence that I desired. And that I don't think that came out of me. I think that came out of the environment of people who were faithful, believing that they could have intimacy with God. Wow. Yeah. And so you also met somebody of significance while you were at the Naval Academy. Yeah. Got booed up. (laughs) So it's funny. Um, So I met my husband when I was at the preparatory school. He was prior Marine. His goal was to become a major in the Marine Corps. That's what his goal. He ended up getting medically discharged his senior year in college. And so we met at the preparatory school. We were friends. So he was booed up with his high school sweetheart, I was actually dating one of his friends. Mm -hmm. So that's that. (laughs) Um, But we had stayed in touch like my first year of college and then we lost communication. And then my senior year of college, he started reaching out again. I told you I sung on the gospel choir. So one of the things we did on the gospel choir during spring break, we would go on these kind of admissions recruitment tours. And so they would actually send the gospel choir out to like minority communities to recruit and tell people about the Naval Academy. And so they would like pay for the spring break tour and you get to hang out with your friends and you get to sing and you get to do all these things that you're not paying for any of it. And so that year, my senior year, we were heading to Orlando for our spring break tour. And because he was at Tallahassee attending fam, he said, oh, I'll just come see you. And I was like, cool. And we've been together ever since. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's cool. That seems like, I mean, there was just so much that was happening. And one of the most difficult things, you know, happened in 2006 related to your mom. Tell us a little bit about that story and that journey. Yeah, my mother was always physically ill. And as her child, we had an idea that she had illnesses, but we did not understand the significance of it. So my mother had her first open heart surgery. She was like young 30. Mm. And so that was like, what's wrong with mom? And that was just a stint of it. Nobody explained it to you. It's like, your mom, she's she's sick. She's going to get a surgery. She'll be okay. And I know she had kidney problems. Um, And I didn't know the extent of that. And then my first semester of sophomore year in college, she had another aneurysm in her heart. And so she had open heart surgery. And this was right before Christmas. It was like two days after her birthday in early December. And so our thought was, oh, she'll beat this because that's what mama does. It's not that we didn't take it seriously. We just like, this is something we're going to go through. Like you're going to do this and we're going to come out on the other side and we're going to live and we're going to have a good time. You're right. And that's kind of where everyone was. And it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. And so, you know, here I am two days after her birthday, the oldest child of three, so far away with no real job, no money, a week before final exams, what, two, three weeks before Christmas. And I go home and my dad, Russell, he sat and looked out the window for three days, didn't say nothing, Mm. didn't hardly eat anything. Mm. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's how traumatic this was for everyone. And then for me to come back to school and there's grief, you can't fix it, you can't take care of things, you still have a job and work to do, and you can't be with your family. Like, you can't take time off. That's the reality. However, 
the unhealthy reality of it was, you know, you get back. No one's talking about counseling. No one's talking about, you know, you need to see somebody and process things. And no one's saying like, oh, is there anything we can do to make this better? The Naval Academy has one job, <laughs> right? To prepare you to become an officer in the United States Navy and the United States Marine Corps and to be the best officer you can be in that. That's their one job. They're not doing all the other things, <laughs> right? And so I just came back and did what was required of me for the job that I signed up for. Mm. And so I didn't realize that it was years before I processed the grief of all that stuff. Mm. I mean, years, like more than a decade later, mm. because there was just no space for it. <sighs> wow. That's such a, a reality. What are some of the lessons? Because on one sense, like you said, there is this psychological challenge and mental fortitude that is intentionally being designed to build up soldiers. Mm -hmm. Then there was this other part that was happening of really just not trying to build up anything, just trying to tear you down from folks who didn't think you belonged. Right. How do you think those experiences even prepared you for yeah. such a loss and, and having to not really have much time to process it? Yeah. So what I did was I grew in faith. Hmm. Really? I mean, that was that was this critical and so there are things, you know, in the revelation say they overcame by the blood of the land and a power of testimony. And so I, I firmly believe in the power of testimony. And so there are things you can read in the Bible, right? There are things you might not understand. There are things people can tell you about God, but nobody can tell me what I know to be true about how God has met me mm. in my most intimate moments. Right. And so I know God to be a mother to the motherless. I know God to be a father to the fatherless, right? I know God to be a comforter when you're broken and you're in need of healing. I know God to be a provider. Like, like there are all kinds of ways that I understand the generosity and the hospitality of God. I understand what it means to be shaped through suffering. You know, just thinking about this particular moment, people were so generous to my family. Mm. And my mother, because of her health, she couldn't get health insurance mm. because she had all these pre-existing conditions. So you have someone who passes away that we could not bury. Huh. And I had people from the Naval Academy say, oh, we'll, we'll pay for that. Mm. We'll pay for that. And, and there were bills that needed to be paid. And people was like, oh, we'll take care of that. Mm. Don't, don't worry about that. You know? And I'm like, that's what, that's what God does. These were not people necessarily I was really tight with or anything. And so I'm like, thank you. Mm. Like, you know, thank you, Jesus, that God provided for us in such a way. And I will serve God who is taking good care of me in the midst of all this suffering. And the other part of it is I would love to be a type of person who shows up for people when they're in need. Right. And them not worrying about, oh, she's going to act funny or she's going to ask for it back or I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to be shamed. It's like, no, I'll take care of that because God has been gracious and generous to us that we could take care of that. Right. Mm -hmm. And not have it be a conversation, something you got to worry about later. And God has made it where, you know, my family, that there are occasions when we could do that. And as God continue to increase us, that's the kind of people that we want to be. And then I think that. You know, what I was carrying, I didn't realize at the time, you know, just uh, there was a guilt on top of that. Like as a firstborn, mm -hmm. like I, that's something I should have been able to take care of. Mm. Right. And I couldn't. And so like even my father now, my father is 73. And I've said to my father, I'm like, when you get done hanging out in this apartment by yourself, just tell me because we're going to take care of that. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, whenever you get ready to not be out here by yourself and you want to come here, you want to go there, don't matter to me, but your latter days going to be greater than your former. Mm. Right? Because that's what we're going to do for someone who's taken such good care of us. Right? And I wasn't able to do that for my mother just because I was young. Right? Right? I had no job. Right? But I'm grown now. <laughs> That's beautiful. And it's also just such a redemptive story 
to come into the Naval Academy and experience the resistance Mm -hmm. and then on your way out, right, to experience this incredible blessing. Mm -hmm. And in between was the perseverance and the strength that you learned, Mm -hmm. that you leaned on from back Mm -hmm. home in Orangeburg, that you Mm -hmm. leaned on from those elders that you were sitting at that told you the stories about the bowling alley and told you the stories that they had struggled through. And now in a whole different space, you're seeing that, and now you're wanting to pay it for it. Now I'm curious because the subtitle of a sojourner's truth was choosing freedom and courage in a divided world. Right. And that story seems almost like a microcosm of what that is. So like, tell us about why you had that message on your heart and what were you wanting to share with others in light of what God had done in you? Yeah. So the subtitle wasn't mine. That was the publisher. The title was mine. <laughs> Okay. I was wordsmithing that with one of my writer friends and landing on Sojourner's Truth. Like, even though I don't write about Sojourner's Truth in the book, there's so much about her agency and her character that I believe I'm able to walk into as someone who's been inspired by her as I got to understand her story better. And, you know, she was born a slave, Isabella, but she named herself Sojourner's Truth. And she said, you know, like Sojourner being someone who kind of wanders across the plain or the land or the field or whatever. But the truth is what we proclaim, right? What preachers are called to proclaim. And so she named herself that. And so I think about this woman who was illiterate, you know, never learned how to read and write. But the way she came into understanding of her faith is that she would have people read the Bible to her. And so she actually learned large passages of scripture in that way and was able to speak boldly. And I think some cases prophetically because of the conviction that she had from encountering the God of the word. And then she was a advocate for women and she was an advocate for black people, right? So she was a part of the abolitionist movement for black people and part of the women's suffrage movement as well. A lot of people don't know that she was also at spy, like in the same way that we honor um, Harriet Tubman in that way. She did a lot of that work with the union as well. And so she had a lot of influence coming from very small and humble beginnings and did the best she could, what she had to the benefit of other people. And so I thought with my own story, a lot of times I'm like, you know, just amazed that God would use me at all. Mm. Right. <laughs> like, you know, and I know God uses anybody. He uses broken vessels, so to speak, all the time and imperfect people all the time. But I also try to stay humble in that, but also stay in awe of God of that. And, yeah, and that really comes across. You do a lot and you, you do a lot of Bible <laughs> studies. <laughs> you do a lot of leadership development. You do a lot of coaching yeah. and consulting. And so I was a little bit surprised that the book was as personal and you still did those things. Those tie ins were there. But I was like, oh, yeah. she's she's kind of starting from herself. Yeah. And and I think that there's a, a pedagogical lesson in that. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, God wants us to start from what we know and what we've experienced before we just kind of from the ivory tower, just kind of waxed eloquent about others. Mm -hmm. What was some of the response that you saw to you kind of bearing your soul like that? And how do you think that's an important teaching tool? Yeah. Again, I think what people get on the ground or lay people like folks who don't get the privilege of going to school Mm -hmm. or to seminary or whatever, I'm clear and I want other people to be clear. That doesn't mean that those people are less theologically sound Mm. or less faithful to God. Right. A lot of our faith traditions and legacies have been passed on orally, have sustained communities and families for generations at a time for people who never went to seminary. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's this temptation of thinking, you know, again, we get into classism and thinking something is better because and quite frankly, if I could be honest, sometimes because close proximity to whiteness. Right. And I think we have to be very careful and intentional about that. And so I think there's an equally important truth to having a lived theology of embodying the passage in the faith that we proclaim to believe. And this is the challenge, I think, of what it really means to be a disciple is living and walking in the way of Jesus. Mm. Right. Not that you just have all the theological points right. And I think it's important to have theological points, right? Let me be clear. But I'm saying I think sometimes we lose sight of the humans, the image bearers of God, when we're trying to do the work that God has called us to in the church. Wow. That's a good word. So 
I'm, I'm going to get into the weeds on one last thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, like I said, I kind of experienced you and came to know you as this like Bible teaching leadership guru person. And yet you are also talking about issues of equality of justice, you know, of ethnicity and race. How do you see those things together? And why, if I'm faithful to the Bible, right. And I'm faithful to discipleship, should I care about these issues of justice in the way that you kind of put them at the forefront? There's a lot of ways I could engage that. I think the simplest way I would say is if I were to bare bone everything, I think our faith is about the great commission and the great greatest commandment, right? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The great commission is you know, Jesus saying there's there's several ways he's saying it in the Gospels. But in Matthew, the one we're most familiar with, he tells his disciples, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. And the imperative is not to go. The imperative is to make disciples. That's the command to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And then this is the promise because lo, I'm with you always into the very end of the age. And so because of the authority that Jesus has and because he promises to be with us until the very end of this journey, I can respond with a yes to the commandment he's given, which is to make disciples and disciple making is not just about programming. It's not just about Bible study. It's not just about going to church. It's not just about activity. I look at disciple making in the way that Jesus modeled for us with the 12 men we call apostles and the women that accompany them on the journey of investing large amount of time with small groups of people because I believe that's where we're going to have the greatest impact. And so I look at that and I look at what Jesus taught, how he made the good Samaritan a hero in the story, how he engaged, how he made the Samaritan woman the evangelist to her town when she was ostracized and oppressed and what he spoke about his own life and ministry. When he goes back and reads from Isaiah, when he gives us a sermon on the Mount, like these are the things I'm anchored in. And so to me, when I'm anchored in the teachings of Jesus, the embodiment and practices of the Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us, and I see that, then that's what I'm modeling my life after. And so to me, it's not about race stuff over here and justice stuff over there. It's about the whole gospel, not part of the gospel, and living in the way of Jesus. I told y'all Natasha had a great story. She really embodies the idea of what some call a lived theology. She doesn't just talk about endurance or discipleship. She lives it and has seen how God has worked mightily in her life. I hope y'all not only enjoyed her story, but are also encouraged to endure whatever hardships you may be going through today. This is where you're from. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This story was produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark and Jade Gustafson and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Annie and Becky for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where you're from is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.